Okay, welcome to the 30th edition of the CineLit podcast. Today is a bittersweet episode as we are looking at the film career of director Norman J. Warren, who sadly passed away on the 11th of March 2021, aged 78 years old. It struck me on my social media channels that there were a lot of people mourning Norman's passing and nearly all of them included the coda of, for those of you unaware of Norman's work, and then they give a brief view, overview of his career or their favourite scene or film. But I think everyone recognised that it wasn't a given that people on their feed would know who he was. So here we are today to hopefully rectify a little bit of that in the uh, wider scheme of things. I am your host, Adam Marsh, and I am joined as ever by Cinelit's resident expert, Daryl Buxton. How are you, Daryl? I'm fine, thanks, Adam. Looking forward to this, as, as you say, in a, in a sad way, in in many ways, because uh, Norman was not only someone I was a fan of, but he was a he was a good mate as well. You know, I saw him regularly, uh, um, at least once a year, a couple of times a year at different festivals and things. And uh, we'll talk more about him as as a man as we go as well, and about the the sort of friendship that uh, a lot of the uh, a lot of the film community had for him. Uh, yeah. So yeah, sad sad in a way, but nice to be able to sort of pay tribute to him. So yeah, I mean that is one of the one of the key things that has come out of this: people talking about his work, but also just saying what a lovely man. I mean, I, I met him on a couple of occasions and we, we, we brought him to Derby to do an event with us a few years ago with David McGillivray. And again, I've got nothing to say. You know, it's like, what a lovely man. You're a really, really lovely person. Yeah, I think this is one thing people are starting to find out and realise about the type of person who who was making films in the 60s, 70s and 80s. I know the films that had terrible reputations back then um, violent thrillers, horror films, sex exploitation films, and so on—all all of these disreputable uh, sort of uh, genres and, and subgenres—and often were made by the nicest people around, you know. And I think that's been found out in the years when they've been doing sort of festival appearances and so on. Norman attended the Festival of Fantastic Films in Manchester in 1991. That's That festival's been running for 30 years now. And Norman was invited as a guest to the second ever event that they did in 1991, which was held at a hotel at Manchester Airport, rather strangely. And uh, Norman was there, Screaming Lord Such was there as a guest, and he was great fun that weekend. Norman was interviewed about his career and we were all sort of fanboys and all thinking, oh, great to meet the the director of Terror and Prey and all these films that we'd watched at the cinema or on video. And then the following year, 1992, Norman came back. He wasn't invited. He just turned up like like I did, like all the punters did. You know, he paid his fee. He he, he turned up for the weekend, and we never got rid of him. He, every year that he could, he came back to the Manchester Festival of Fantastic Films, and rather than being there as a guest and the big I am, you know, he, he was there having breakfast with us all every every morning, you know, and chatting about other people's films and stuff that we'd all been doing, you know, and, it, and he did just become a mate over that period. So, yeah, I, I count myself as a friend of Norman's for getting on for 30 years. So, yeah, it was a blow to a lot of us in that community when uh, when the news came through. I, I was on his Christmas card list, for God's sake. So, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. what, what can you say? He, he sent Christmas cards. There's, there's the man making all these terrible, violent, nasty horror films in the 1970s 
No, he had a Christmas card list. So uh, yeah. lovely guy, lovely guy. As I say, <laughs> we 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 brought him up to Derby uh, three or four years ago, and he, yeah, again. Previously, Robert Young was our was our most lovely guest, or possibly John Huff. They're both just absolute lovely guy. But Norman came in and just showed them how to be ultimately yeah. the nicest person on earth. E- eclipsed, yeah, 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 exactly. Cool. Well, let's 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 get into his work then, because Norman made nine feature films over his career roughly falling into two categories uh sexploitation films early doors and his horror career which he's probably best known for um should we start at the beginning with with the the sexploitation films yeah we'll we'll rattle through those yeah because he'd, he'd, he'd sort of he'd worked in film companies um as a runner and i think he'd reached as high as a sort of assistant director on at least one project um, in the early 60s and he'd, he'd, he'd made his own short films as well he'd done a film called Incident and a film called Fragment and these little experimental things but uh, as all young filmmakers did in the 60s they all wanted to get into directing and get into making features and often the only way to do that was to make something like a horror or sexploitation film and Norman got offered the chance to do that by uh, a, a rather dodgy figure in the British film industry, a, a producer called uh, Batu Sen, who uh, is uh, quite quite a notorious sort of figure, um, typical fly-by-night uh, British-based producer, really. You know. But he could raise money, you know, to, to make a movie. And he put this thing together called Her Private Hell, which um, uh, Simon Sheridan who wrote the book, uh, the wonderfully titled book, Keeping the British End Up, which was the first history of um, uh, the, uh, the the British sex film, sort of one by one. David McGillivray, who you mentioned before, who wrote for Norman, had uh, done his book, Doing Rude Things, which was a sort of insider's history of that industry. But uh, Simon's book was the first to really sort of cover it film by film. And Simon actually claims that her private hell is the first proper British sexploitation movie. There'd there'd been things before, like these sort of things with uh, nudist camps and people playing volleyball with no clothes on and stuff like that. But Norman and her private hell was the first sort of, um, the the first drama with characters that had... um, that revolved around the, the sort of nude scenes and sex scenes. Um, and it's a great little film. This was put out by the, the BFI on their Flipside label a few years ago, wasn't it? That's right, yeah. And it's a really good flip, fit for Flipside because um, it's, it's, it's quite gritty in parts. And, um, you know, it, it, Norman didn't really have his heart in um, the, the sexploitation business. He wanted, he wanted to make horror films, you know, but he wanted to make any film that he could, really. And uh, this was a chance to sort of get behind the camera and do something. Um, but, yeah, his heart wasn't really in this. You can tell his heart's not really in Loving Feeling, which is the other film that he did in the 60s. And uh, even, even in um, one of his horror films, Prey, which has got a same-sex uh, female couple, and we'll talk more about that when we get on to talking about Prey. But um, Norman had admits that in in the bedroom scene between the two actresses he says 
I, I didn't know what lesbians did and neither did, neither did the two girls. So we just had to sort of make it up as, as we shot, you know. And, it's funny, so, he also said about the, about the stripping scenes in, in the, one of those two early films that the, the stripper basically directed it. <laughs> you know, yeah, said, well, shoot yeah. it from this angle, I'll do a bit of a wiggle. Do it on this angle. Okay, yeah. I'm 20 years old, 25 years old. I don't know what I'm doing, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, the thing about her private hell, and I think this is testament to how Norman could easily make friends and and, and get all his mates around him, you know, is he had a little bit of a, a, a sort of uh, behind the scenes um, stock company thing going on. Whereas um, John Scott, who's a huge, famous film composer, but he was he was a mate of Norman's as well. So any time Norman made a film, it'd be, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll do the music for it, you know, probably for free or buy us a couple of pints or something. Thing, you know, and uh, uh, Les Young was a big friend of Norman's who who was able. He, he was a um, a guy who was able to sort of raise a bit of money here and there, and he he came on board as producer on a few of Norman's films. And um, Hayden Pierce, who was perhaps Norman's best friend, um, was basically a sort of jack of all trades. He's usually credited as something like set designer or production designer or something. But he basically did everything that that other people didn't do. If a job needed doing, Hayden would do it. And you even see him acting in a lot of Norman's films. If if there's a scene with a bartender or something, it's normally Hayden playing it. Now, they're all in place on Her Private Hell, and they all stayed with him through most of his career. So uh, um, so straight, straight away, you've got Norman, but you've got this batch of, of close friends who were all working together and all sort of finding their way in, into the film business. Um, what's interesting about Her Private Hell is Norman, uh, when we get on to talking about his horror films, we'll talk about Satan's Slave, which was his first horror movie in the mid-70s. And Her Private Hell has got a very, very similar sort of structure and plot and very similar characters to it. If you take out the, the sort of demonology and the, the Satanism and the sacrifice and everything, that are the sort of horror elements of Satan's Slave, it's actually almost identical to her private hell. You've almost got equivalence to every single character in there. And and the, the central core plot of a young woman who's sort of lured to a place that she doesn't quite know what she's going to get into, finds that she's trapped, starts to find a way out, and, and that the people that she's trusted are not necessarily to be trusted. So, yeah, those two films, Her Private Hell and then the later horror film, Satan's Slave, interestingly, have a lot of parallels. So they're worth watching as a double bill, even if, if you know Norman's films very well, but you want to get a new experience out of watching his films. I'd recommend watching Her Private Hell and then watching Satan's Slave afterwards and seeing the parallels in the two. I mentioned John Scott and the music, and uh, John provides an excellent score for this, which is far too good for the sort of film it is. It's got experimental jazz in there. Uh, Blow Up had just come out, and we, we love the soundtrack to Blow Up. And John, you can tell John's putting little keyboard-driven elements of that in there as well. And, and the film's even got a great horror-like scene in it. Uh, as I say, the, the central plot is that a, a young model gets lured into the, the sex industry and gets lured into sort of taking her clothes off and having photographs taken, which then get sold all across Europe without her knowledge, you know. And uh, she's sort of trapped in this apartment, almost sort of forced the wrong word because it's not it's not as quite as oppressive as I'm making it sound. But, but she's sort of impelled to 
get involved in these photo sessions whenever the photographers want her to, you know. And the uh, the girl is played by uh, Lucia Modugno, who we know from uh, Danger Diabolique, which was made earlier the same year, the, the great Mario Barber film. But, so, I, thought, yeah. I thought it was interesting that Norman, and it's not something that you necessarily would, if, you, if you've only seen these horror films, some of the influences that went into her private hell maybe have, have been exercised by the time he gets to his horror period. It's definitely a French New Wave influence yeah, in certainly. these early yeah. early things. Yeah. Um, well, this this one's in black and white for starters, you, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and with a European uh, actress sure. in the lead as well, you know. Now she's she's supposed to be playing a, a, a teenage girl, and I think she was sort of closer to thirty when they shot. But that's that's fairly typical for the exploitation industry, anyway. I think, and she she gets away with it. But yeah, there's this one scene in the movie where um, uh, she's sort of in this apartment where she doesn't want to be, but she can't get out of. And so she decides to go exploring and it's actually a vast place in a sort of vast building. And she starts wandering down these corridors and there's all these sort of doors off to the side and so on. And she ends up in this sort of attic um, that's got like a slattered wooden roof and, and the, the, the wind is whistling through these roof slats and John Scott's music is all very eerie and creepy and um, and it could almost be out of a horror movie. It could be out of a great gothic film, you know. And then she turns back and walks down the corridor. And there's there's even a jump scare at that point. A photographer leaps out at her with, with a camera in hand, you know. And then she wanders off into another room. And there are these two girls in there who, who we, we've never met before and we don't know anything about. And again, you know, if, if, if this was a film by someone like uh, Jean Roland or, or Jose Larraz or one of those, those great European horror directors, these girls might well turn out to be uh, sort of vampires secreted away or something. But, uh, but there is this air of mystery about them. And, and following on from the rest of that scene, you know, it almost encapsulates Norman's love of horror in this film that isn't a horror film you know and it's almost as though he's compelled to put something like that in there but as you say it's got this strong new wave influence as well and uh yeah it's it's uh, a, a great start to his career i think and and it sort of got buried because it really only played in soho and it played to uh you know men men in raincoats sort of thing and uh, well, so apparently it made a lot of money though didn't it oh, yeah apparently, as, you know, as, the, as the, a lot of these films did yeah mm. yeah so he obviously because of that, he got he cranked out another one the next year. Yeah, <laughs> loving yeah. feeling, which was much more in line of what I guess British sex films were going to become yeah, over the next yeah. ten years or so, the next fifteen years, yeah. uh, where they added the comedy element and became yeah. sex it's, comedies. It's, yeah, it's got a lot more fun in it. It's got a lot more nudity. It's got a lot more sex in it. It simply isn't as good as her private hell, though. You know, it's uh, it's basically a comedy about a, a, a DJ. It's he's, he's like a failed actor who's become a DJ and become very successful at that and has women sort of throwing themselves at him, you know, and uh, there's not really a lot to say about loving feeling. Norman's heart is even less in this one, but it's a chance to do a colour film in the late 60s. What are you going to do, you know? And yeah. uh, It has that it has that thing, though, where, where it sets the tone for a lot of British sex comedies in the sense of, like, it's, I've said this before on, on, on the Razzie's podcast, but it's not that sexy and it's not that funny. Um, no, a no. classic template for a British sex comedy. Should we should we talk about um, Norm's third uh, sex exploitation film, yeah, uh, which came many years later? Yeah. 
Yeah, that was yeah. made in 1979, and it didn't really get a proper release until 1981. It's, it was called Out of Touch, and then it got released in America under a different title, Spaced Out, which is how, how you can now find it on DVD. His first two films were right at the birth of the sexploitation movie. You know, Norman was one of the guys who really helped kick that off. Spaced Out, Out of Touch, was made after the boom. It was made during the sort of dying throes of, of that era. And it sort of shows a little bit, although to bump it up and boost it, it's a science fiction movie. And it's a it's a very colourful, very cheap, very daft, almost sort of spoof on close encounters of the third kind or something, you know. And um, very simple plot, you know, this uh, uh, all female crewed spaceship lands on uh, in in a park in London, and and these four sort of sexually frustrated characters, including a, a male female couple and a sort of pound shop Robin Asquith lookalike. <laughs> played played by Tony Maiden, a lord on board this spaceship, and you can imagine the rest. You know, there's a great onboard computer that is voiced by uh, Bill Mitchell, and if you don't recognise Bill's names, you'll know his voice because he's the guy who did all the gravelly voiceovers for adverts and the uh, movie trailers back then through the 70s and 80s. And Norman used as well um, two members of the cast of Prey, which had been his previous horror film, uh, Barry Stokes and uh, Glory Annan. And everyone has a lot of fun in this, I think. It's, it's, it's nice and lively and it's got a good sort of disco soundtrack. And it's only 77 minutes long, which I think is to its credit. So, Yeah, you don't, you don't want to overstay your welcome. Not at all, not at all. <laughs> Do we need to talk much more about, about I, Space I, 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 I think we've said it all. Right? I think yeah. we said it all, yeah. yeah I mean, yeah. the completest, I think, um, if yeah, you're looking def- at Norman's definitely, career. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so it was a few years between Loving Feeling in 69 and Satan's Slave in 76. Not, um, for want, not for want of trying. I was about to Norman, say not for want of trying, yeah, yeah. yeah. Norman got involved with the Amicus films, I understand, who, who were one of the big horror companies of, of the early 70s. And he was trying to make a film for them. Uh, there were a couple of projects mentioned. and The most notorious one was uh, a film called uh, um, The Devil's Eye, I think it was, which I think David McGillivray had written, who, who we had at the Quad a couple of years ago with Norman. And they were going to star Vincent Price in this, and it came close to getting made, but then it all fell through. And it took Norman then another three years to get a version of that film made. That eventually turned into what became, first of all, it, the title was changed to Evil Heritage, and then ultimately it got filmed and released as uh, Satan's Slave, the film that we know today. Uh, so that all came out of the embers of this, uh, this aborted Vincent Price project. Yeah, so it took seven years to actually get that done. Norman uh, had this seven-year gap before he could actually get his first horror film done. And then he went crazy and he sort of made one a year, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, This was all at a time as well. 1976 was at a time when horror films were just sort of died out in Britain. Yeah, I was just looking at that. Hammer Hammer had stopped making them. (laughs) Hammer had finished. Well, Hammer, Hammer had made uh, To the Devil a Daughter in 1975, and they, they didn't do any more horror films until their, their, their comeback in, in the 21st century. 
To give a sort of perspective on this in terms of figures, there were approximately 170 horror films made in Britain in the 1970s. About 130 of those were made between 1970 and 76, and only 40 in 76, 77, 78 and 79. So you've got half of the decade where there's well over 100 movies made, about 125, 130 made. And then the final half of the decade, there's only 40 films made of, the, of that time. And Norman made a, a good portion of those, about about 10%, you know. What do you think the reasoning for that is? Do you think, do you think it's um, a lack of investment on the British side of things, coupled yeah, with the yeah. American slasher boom coming over i think that's absolutely right adam if you look at the final hammer films that you were talking about to the devil a daughter there and they 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 made um legend of the seven golden vampires in the mid 70s too even hammer were having to sort of look abroad for finance um they were going to german companies they were going to companies in hong kong to sort of co-finance their films at that point and then that money dried up as 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 american money had dried up in british production in the 1960s you know and and the British film industry constantly has these battles where we're, we're trying to find funding from other sources to boost the budgets of our films. And suddenly, when the rug gets pulled out, we've got no film industry for, for a few years until it all comes back and rolls around and revives again. You know, I mean, we could well be in another situation like that very soon. You know, what's interesting here with Norman is he'd absolutely got this drive that he wanted to make horror films. He was a big horror fan. He wanted to make a horror film. And by the time he finally got round to doing it, no one was interested. But he ploughed on anyway. This is the great thing about his career. And because nobody else was making them, he managed to get his films, even though they were independently produced, he managed to get them into cinemas. Yeah, I mean, the Satan Slave is an interesting one because you talked about its, its roots in in, in me being an, an amicus project. And it does feel that way. It does feel like it's got one foot in the Hammer, Amicus, Tygon kind of era of cinema and, and that kind of quaint, which is, you know, uh, sacrifices. And then it's got another foot in the more modern as we're about to succeed, Jalloy style European horror and, and indeed some of the American slasher style horror. And uh, the plot of Satan's Slave is pre- pretty generic and pretty basic, but we love it all the more for that. You know, you can't have too many films with Satanism in a British country house, can you? <laughs> I'd, I'd watch 10 of those a year, frankly, you know. Well, it, uh, it is one of those things where it's like, you know, yes, yes, it's it's played and it's trite and, and you've seen that thing millions times before. But there's something in that as well in horror films. There's a comfort in watching something that you know how it's going to turn, <laughs> you know, how yeah, it's going. a yeah. lot of horror films are like that. And this, it's just how it's done and how well it's played and how much of the tongue is in the cheek and all that kind of, those kind of elements come into play when you're watching things like this. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, big, big spoiler on Satan's Slave for anyone who's not seen it. It's got a downbeat ending, <laughs> although that probably isn't a spoiler based on what you're saying, Adam, because I think people watching a film from that era Go in expecting a downbeat ending, which is exactly what what you're getting at. You know? Well, it's funny. My my son was asking me the other day. Um, my son's nine. Just for I don't inflict horror films on him, but he was asking me about are there films with unhappy endings? Because all he watches is, is kids' films, you know, and they, and they all have happy endings. <laughs> 
And I'm like, yes, there, there, there is. I, mean, I guess, I guess, horror films, scary films, tend to have a, a horror film have a scary ending. But you know, it's just, it's just aliens aim. Uh, the idea yeah. of an, unha- an unhappy ending. <laughs> yeah, and and I guess it's not just people of your son's age, Adam. You no. know, there may, there may be people that are versed in watching dramas or rom-coms or whatever who never steer into the world of horror and and love films where everything comes out fine at the end, you know, mm-hmm. and, and find shock or twist endings a bit of a turn-off, you know. And uh, but but yeah, they, they were almost de rigueur at the time that Norman was working, you know. And you can tell from his films because they, they none of them end very well, you know. No, I mean, but that's that's kind of like the way horror's gone as well in some ways. Yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah, I, yeah. I I sometimes sit and watch a horror film and, and yearn for a happy ending because yes, I've yeah, seen yes. I've seen yeah. downbeat endings so many times, yeah. particularly in the last few years. Let's move on to terror. I mean, I know it's a, we're jumping ahead a little bit in the timeline, yeah. but Norman, if if Norman's uh, Satan slave was had one foot in the Amicus and Hammer camps. Then terror, he, he jumped with both feet into um, Euro horror, as as played out by Argento in Suspiria. Yeah, well, regular listeners again will know that we did we did a big uh, podcast on Argento last year. A very year. popular Dario podcast, Argento, I think. One one of our most popular. Yeah. yeah. So Dario Argento, the little potted version of that is is simply to say that he was the great innovator of Italian horror really, really sort of made a particular style of Italian horror films so popular in the 1970s. And um, uh, his film Suspiria got released over here in 1977, which was unusual. Not many not many Italian films of its type were getting released. Some of the sort of giallo type films had been released, but not a lot of sort of supernatural Italian horror was coming out and uh, and certainly not films on this sort of scale. This was like something British audiences had never seen before. And I know that Norman and his writer, David McGillivray, both saw the film and they both said afterwards, we, we've got to we've got to make that. The thing they loved about Suspiria was it reinvented all the rules. You didn't have to have a plot suddenly. You could have scenes that didn't make any sense. You could have scenes that were almost filmed as standalone sketches, you know. And if they didn't connect to the main story or if there was a bit of a stretch to connect them, it didn't matter. And this was like a revelation to David and Norman. It's like, right, we can do a sort of freewheeling horror film. The reins are off here. You know, we can do what we like. And boy, did they. You know, Mm -hmm. terror is fabulous. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it definitely wears its influences front and centre. I mean, the use of coloured gels in this movie yeah. is very Argento. Yeah. Again, interestingly, it starts out as a gothic horror. It starts out mm. as a sort of par- parody of Hammer films. And then, of course, we get the great rug pulling. Oh, it's all a movie. We're watching a preview of a gothic horror film, you know. Yeah, it got me, I must admit. It got me. Yeah. But then again, yeah. I've been yeah. watching... I've been watching, I watched Satan's Slave and then I watched, watched Terror straight afterwards. So yeah. I was expecting that style of film and then it got pulled under. It's like, okay, that's great. I yeah, and, and suddenly we don't know where we are we, because scene after scene after scene happens. They all seem sort of loosely connected, but it doesn't really matter whether they're connected or not because we're just there watching the, each set piece as it happens. There is this loose plot that sort of connects it all together about a sort of cursed sword, and it all connects to the gothic film that we've just seen an excerpt of as well. And it all connects to the, guess what, old British country house where all the action's taking place. 
the, the filmmakers, Norman and David and all the guys involved, do not care whether it makes any sense or not. What they want is to get a response from us every five minutes, and they do. You know, you've got flying cars. You've got a, a scene that have, having having stolen from Dario Argento, Argento then stole from from Norman because Norman's got a scene where someone almost gets decapitated. Well, they get killed and almost have their head severed by a falling window pane um, sliding down. Um, and, and hitting them in the neck. And in Argento's Inferno, there's a there's a repeat of that scene. So is that coincidence or was Dario sort of looking at the people he'd influenced? You know, someone gets attacked by nine copies of Saturday Night Fever at one point. You know, you're <laughs> not going to get that in many films. It's funny because that scene starts off and you think this is, this is ridiculous, but plays out longer and longer. And the more it plays out, the more the more you take it seriously. It and gets more and more those, that, yeah. That, yeah. that mass of film stock dragging and pulling at him um, starts to feel like like um, molasses or something like that, stuck in him, dragging him back. And it's like, oh, God, this is really effective. Yeah, it's it's like that comedy uh, sort of shtick where uh, if someone gets hit over the head once, it's funny. If they get hit over the head six times, you, start, you sort of think, isn't this gag going on a little bit now? If they get hit over the head... 72 times it starts being funny again yeah. and, and that's that's the same sort of pace that Norman puts into this you know and it, it becomes genuinely odd and disturbing you know mm. the fact that it's actual celluloid that's attacking this poor victim and again is is Norman making some kind of comment about uh, about the state of cinema there or, or is it just a cool scene you know yeah, I mean, as much as it wears its sort of like Italian influence on its sleeve, there's something wonderfully British about it as well. You know, just particularly in the in the dialogue and McGillivray's script, uh, the shooting of the sex comedies, darling, my neck is in here, like, darling, you know, <laughs> all that kind of stuff, you know. And the, and the strip club as well is kind of like, the scene at the strip club, I remember thinking like, they're striving for Argento and barely getting Jess Franco in this scene. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was yeah. one of those kind of yeah. shots. Although what, what I will say about Terror is I think any, anyone who saw Peter Strickland's film in Fabric mm. uh, two or three years ago, I, I think that it is definitely set in the world of, of, of Norman J. Warren, and in particular set in the world of Terror. There are scenes, without it being sort of imitative, It's I mean, I'd, I'd say In Fabric is more imitative of Suspiria, which which sort of mm. ties it into Terry, you know. So it's not an imitation of Terry. You won't see direct copies of the scenes in there. But what you will see is scenes that you could almost edit from one movie into the other, you know, and uh, it's got the same sort of tone to it. And it, it deals with that crossover between British and European art horror in the very same way that Terry does. And mm. I, I'm sure that Peter Strickland must have had Norman's film in mind when when he was shooting. It it seems so, so close in tone and feel to me. I think it's the the British sensibility in the scripting. It definitely marries within fabric. 
um, you know, the, the 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 wanting of that quaint Englishness, and, and not just quaint Englishness as, as a of tea rooms and things like that, but of also like seedy Soho and, and down yeah, the pub yeah, and that exactly. kind of stuff. And and then throwing into that, suddenly going wild and have a sort of crazy flying killer dress or these weird mannequins on the road and things like mm. that. Now this sort of thing happens in terror. We get this very parochial, very British, you know, uh, people drinking and dancing to disco music at a party sort of thing. And then suddenly you've you've got swords flying through the air. You've got cackling witches. You've got, as I say, you've got a flying car, you know, <laughs> all this outrageous stuff in the horror scenes. And it is that mix that, that I think feeds into a film like In Fabric. Yeah, so just just jumping again. I mean, I, we're not going necessarily chronological on these horror films, but jumping on to Bloody New Year, which was eighty seven, Norman's last horror film. Yeah, there's a lot of inanimate and, objects and, and being coming to life in that yes, in, in that yeah, film yeah. that link it back to terror. Yeah, this was all filmed on uh, Barry Island in mm. Wales. Again, they've got no money whatsoever. They've got no resources. But what they do is they go back to the style of terror. It's basically let's make a film where we can throw in the kitchen sink and have a monster come out of it. We can throw everything in that we want to throw in. And if, if it doesn't make any sense at the end, who cares? You know, uh, the evil dead had come out by this point, And I think Norman had obviously seen that. And I think that's got quite a big influence on this interesting plot because it's about this bunch of young people i won't call them teenagers because they're clearly not but a bunch of young people go out to this uh, deserted hotel on on barry island and uh, and and they go in there and they they discover that they've gone through a time warp and it's actually permanently new year's eve 1959 and they can't escape and uh, and then all kinds of weird things start happening that, that make no sense to the characters on screen and make even less sense to us. But there's all kinds of stuff going on there. It's, it's less successful in that in the climate of horror. Though. It feels more old-fashioned. Obviously, the 1950s setting adds to that feeling yeah, of being yeah. old and old-fashioned. But there is something a little bit, a little bit old-fashioned about it, the, the, the haunted house style. And also, it feels a little bit Twilight Zone-y, you know, the, the sort of like plot. Quite yeah, yeah, it is. It's it's it, it really is sort of at least twenty years out of date, isn't it? You know, and uh, it it plays like a sort of mid sixties to late sixties type uh, movie. Well, still things to enjoy in it. Oh yeah, a, a, a lot. You know, and uh, it didn't get a proper release in Britain. It didn't play in cinemas, which was the sort of state of of our industry at that time. Did come out on video though, and came out in an amazing sort of three um, D. Um, a video case which which now go for a lot of money on eBay if you if you can ever find one you know so yeah it's uh, notable in that sense and also it got it got released on Blu-ray twice last year because Vinegar Syndrome put it out in America on New Year's Day brilliantly <laughs> um, and then it came out in the Norman J Warren box set which Indicator released which has been selling like hotcakes in the last few days. Well, yeah, I think it's sold out now, hasn't it? Uh, yeah, yeah. On their site. So, yeah, but a great box set. 
the two remaining one have a link, I guess. We've got Prey and we've got Inseminide. One has a slightly science fiction here, yeah. and one's a full-on sci-fi horror. And, and of course, they link to uh, Outer Touch, which was, which was yeah. made in between. So Norman's got a bit of a science fiction trilogy going on there. So, yeah. you know, I'm talking about how you can pair up a lot of his films and make these double and triple bills out of them. It's almost as though it was all designed. You know, I'm sure it wasn't. But well, um, I, I think it's yeah, just yeah. what goes into making, in, I guess, what goes into making a Norman J. Warren movie some of the same influences and same uh thoughts and ideas come through in in each film so yeah yeah them together so we said we, we started with prey which was in between uh satan's slave and uh terror um no it's one i haven't seen i think i have seen it i think i saw it when we played it at quad yeah about yeah. four years ago but i i yeah it's not one that stuck with me i must admit well, pass it over to me then, Adam, because I've, yes. I've, I've got I've got a lot to say about it. Um, oh. It's 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 become over the years the most highly critically regarded of all of Norman's films, even more oh. than Terror. I think people think of Terror as being his best film, but Prey is the one that it's most interesting to talk about if you're a film critic. He's um, got so much going on. Just going back to Terror, what was the thought? What, how come John Scott didn't do the score for that? Because it really missed. That's one of that's one of the things I was sitting there thinking. Like this is Leia. It's, it's very very Suspiria. Yeah, yeah. But the one well, lesson they don't seem to have learned from Suspiria is the Goblin pounding yeah, soundtrack. Yeah, yeah. Well, this ties in with the Prey actually, because uh, John didn't do the music for that either. Uh, there was a guy called Ivor Slaney who did the soundtracks for both of those, and I, I guess electronic music and synths and so on were just starting to come in then. And A, they were the sort of flavour of, of the moment. B, they were cheap. And I imagine, I don't know, I never spoke to Norman or John Scott about this, even though they were both constantly a presence at festivals, you know. But I, I would imagine that on, on the budgets that Norman was working on, maybe John was just a little bit too expensive or he didn't want to keep calling in favours from him, you know. And so he went down the route of, do you know anyone with a keyboard, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and Ivor Slaney did the, the scores for Prey and Terror. They got released together on a really good CD a few years ago. Uh, again, I don't know how easy copies of that are to find now, but uh, very, very good uh, disc. But yeah, Prey's, uh, as I say, it's become a real um, sort of critic's darling. You know, every, everyone loves it. Uh, one thing that people talk about is it's got the setup of two girls living together and a, a male character very sort of macho, uh, testosterone-filled sort of male character, in this case an alien as well, comes into their household as an interloper, and it's all about how his presence in this all-female household affects their dynamic. Now, that that is a plot that goes right back to a literary source, which is um, uh, D.H. Lawrence's uh, short story, The Fox, which was written in the 1920s and which itself got filmed in 1967. And after The Fox came out as a movie, it seemed to become a big influence on a lot of horror filmmakers because there are a lot of horror movies that have this two girls, one guy sort of set up in the plot. Jose Larraz's uh, Vampires has it. Norman's Prey has it. But absolutely fascinating film. Some critics have talked about it as being a key film in uh, gay cinema of the period. Some have even said it's a, it's a, it's a treatise on the 
vegetarianism versus the carnivorous, you know, and uh, or um, a lot of people comment mostly on the film's uh, sense of uh, claustrophobia and its general sense of weirdness again, which is something that we keep coming back to in Norman's films, this sense that anything might happen at any time and it doesn't necessarily have to make any sense, you know. It was shot at uh, Shepperton Studios and what they used for most of the shoot was the back lot and there's this house in the grounds of Shepperton Studios which was was basically a sort of residential you know it was a a, a proper a proper house like like you or me live in you know and uh, but it happened to be on the studio lot and of course a lot of productions especially the more low budget end ones would often shoot there not many shot there as well as Prey did, though, because Prey basically took the whole place over and used all of the different rooms in the house and used it to tremendous effect. It's it's the, the rooms are all very different from each other, and Norman really goes to town with that. You know, and there's this uh, there's this lovely sort of conservatory thing in there that he uses. Uh, very, very nicely in Prey. You've got this same-sex couple, as I say, and then suddenly this alien arrives from outer space and he has to masquerade as human because he's on a mission from another planet that's rather sinister. And it's a great performance by Barry Stokes. He's, he's, he's pretty wooden in most films that I've seen him in, but he's very good at using that woodenness to great effect, usually. <laughs> he, I think he recognises his limitations as an actor, and he sort of brings that into the part. It's rather rather clever, you know, what he does. But in Prey, I think he really gets a chance to, 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 to show his stuff, you know, really act. It's a great performance. He, he, he does it so well. And I think that leads in as well to a performance that we'll talk about in, in Seminoid in, in a moment. But uh, yeah, Prey's very, very interesting from a critical point of view, I think. And uh, there's there's a lot of interesting reading about it online or, or indeed in print sources in, in old-fashioned books. So if you, if you want to read up more on Prey or if you've got your own theories about it after you've seen it, I think it's it's the film of Normans that most lends itself to that type of critical analysis. Okay, okay. Obviously, we've talked about these sci-fi leanings, and they went full-blown with um, with Inseminide in 1980-81, um, which I think it's one of those, because I watched it a couple of nights ago, and it's the first time I'd seen it, and I watched it, and, and I can see it how at the time people would say, oh, it's just an alien ripoff. Mm. But from the years that have gone by since then, watching it now, where we've had alien sequels that are alien ripoffs and we've had alien ripoffs left right and center for 30 40 years it, there's nothing that unique about it being an alien ripoff yeah, and then you yeah. start to see the actual film it is i think and i think it's it's not a bad film at all it's a really good no, film no we were talking about this sort of thing on on the uh, razzies podcast mm. our last one where with the passage of time films that feel out of date when they're made or feel like they've ripped something off when they're made in, in history, that doesn't matter. 25, 30, 40 years later, that doesn't matter. And you're watching the film on, on its own merits. And I think in Seminoid really stands up to that. The first thing that Norman or the producer Richard Gordon would have told you about that as well, if you'd mentioned Alien, is to say, oh, we, we'd not seen Alien when we were shooting, you know, because it, 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 it had only just come out. And I don't think it had, it had even yet been released widely. So... 
I, they're actually true in saying that. They had started their movie before Alien came out, but obviously they were in the business. <laughs> they were where it was being shot, So, uh, and they're very good exploitation filmmakers. So I'm sure there was a sense of, hey, there's this film being made uh, by 20th Century Fox being shot in, in England. You know, it's got all these big stars in it. Let's do our cheap version of it. But yeah. I, I guess I guess they didn't know what Alien was going to be like. And I think that shows in Inseminoid mm. because it's not an alien ripoff when you when you sort of analyze it. You know, it's 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 something a little bit different. Yeah, no, I I, I really enjoyed it. And I think I think what I enjoyed most about it was just how gung-ho the actors and actresses in this film are. They yeah. fully commit to this. Absolutely. Fully, fully commit Absolutely. to it. And yeah. I think that really elevates it above any... any there's no tongue-in-cheekness about this film. Um, yes. Yeah. They're playing it straight. It's, it's a, obviously a ridiculous premise about a woman who is impregnated by an alien. So immediately you're thinking, okay, well, the tongue's got to be in the cheek, but they don't, yeah. and they play it so straight. And... Yeah, and for me that way works really well. Yeah, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna come out with a Daryl statement here, Adam. I know you love these. <laughs> Ju- Judy Jeeson's performance oh. in Inseminoid is the best in British cinema in the 1980s. Prove me wrong. I I, I don't know because I mean, literally, my my thoughts on this film for watching was just how fantastic she was in this role. Amazing. Uh, I mean, the the, 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 the it, birth scene alone was yeah was exactly how it should be. It was horrific. Exactly. <laughs> it was like... And I'm sure Norman's direction is an influence here because Judy Jason's a, a competent actor in, in other movies, but she's never someone who sets the screen on fire, you know, and here she does. And Barry Stokes was the same in Prey. He's playing a similar sort of character in Prey where he's, he's sort of pretending to be something he isn't and there's this dual identity thing going on within the character and you get that with Judy Jason here where she's sort of possessed or taken over by the alien pregnancy, but you can tell there's the human in her still fighting its way out, trying to get out. So it's almost the reversal of what's happening with Barry Stokes in Prey. But the the two characters have got these parallels and Stokes isn't a great actor. Judy Jason is, is uh, better than him, but, but, you know, as as I say, has as, as never done anything where you'd want to throw a ward at her. And, and in both of these performances, suddenly you've got these sort of middling actors who are absolutely knocking it out of the park. Judy in particular, I, I honestly think it's the best performance I saw in a British movie in that whole decade. Right. She's she's just fantastic. She's good at playing her, her sort of human character. I think the part's so well written too, because we, we we get we get twenty minutes of her as a human in the future as part of this space program, and and we like her. We like what she's doing there, and then she gets impregnated in a scene that's. I, I don't. I don't even know where to begin describing. You know, <laughs> um, let's just say that um, Norman got asked this question more than any other. What's the fluid that comes down the tube in inseminoid? And it turns out that it was a mixture of raw eggs, which you can actually see in there if you look closely, and that great Derbyshire product, Swarfiga. Oh, I guess. So we, we've, got a, we've got a local connection there, you know, and I'm saying no more about that until you see the film. So, uh, but yeah, Judy absolutely does sell that that whole sort of impregnation scene. And then what, what she does once her character is pregnant is just beyond description 
she goes to places with that part that I, I, I cannot remember seeing from any other performer in British cinema of that era. She's just wonderful. Whether it's attacking people, whether it's um, sort of emotional scenes, there's a great moment where she's just killed somebody and, and the alien in her is about to sort of chow down on, on the corpse. And Norman frames it beautifully. He has her head dipped down below the bottom of the screen. So we have to imagine the horrors that are going on as she's sort of biting into this body, you know. And just before her head goes out of shot, Judy's eyes flick up and look up at us. And it's just a split second moment. And it's beautifully judged. And credit to Norman and credit to the actor there for, for pulling off a, a brilliant, brilliant bit of horror cinema. There's, there's a terrific scene in In Seminoid where she's sort of in the corner of a cave somewhere. And the film was all shot in uh, the famous Chislehurst caves, which have been used as a location in British films going back a decade, you know. And Norman was the first person, I think, to use it as... Uh, an alien planet, which is absolutely brilliant because it looks perfect and it's free. You know, they got this great, great alien location for nothing. You know, it's superb. There's a scene where Judy, as the possessed um, pregnant figure, is um, is sat in hidden in the bowels of one of these caves, but she can hear the the the, the sort of radio communication between the other characters. And she calls them out. She can hear them talking and she just sort of sends out a call to them and basically just says, you all know that you're going to die. Come here now. Come to me now. And it's just so authoritative and and so disturbing. And yet it's coming out of the body of this sort of 30-year-old blonde actress. And, oh, man, the, the juxtapositions that are going on there and the sense that this alien inside her is so very dominant. I, I love things like that in science fiction films where, where the character is so convinced of its power that it just says, you're, you're all going to die and you know it. It's one of those films where it's actually far better than anyone would expect it to be. You know, it's in seminar. It's about an alien impregnating a woman. You know, in in the future in space, it it could be literally like half as good as it is, and people would be fine with that. Do you you know how you can tell that, Adam? What you could do is get a bunch of alien ripoffs because there were a lot of them. Mm. Galaxy of Terror, Forbidden World, Titan Find, Extra, all these films that were made in the early eighties. Get any two or three of those, play them, you know, as a triple bill again, back to back, and in seminoids, the best of the lot. So yeah, yeah, no, by by a mile, by a mile, and then yeah, that 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 birth scene is going to stay with me for for <laughs> for a while I'm, now. I'm, and not, any... I'm not, I'm not even going to talk about that. Well, it's not even, it's not even the the the, the, the <laughs> sort of like the, the special effects as so. It was more just the way that she screams. Yeah, during yeah. that whole sequence, it's just so authentic and impressive and and you get the horror of what's happening to her the pain of childbirth you get all that kind of stuff 
in, in one horrible yeah. elongated scene. Yeah, it is, and it, it's that duality that she yeah. conveys. You know, it's it's that constant sense of. I mean, as I say, when she's just playing a normal character, she's very very good, and I think that's down to Norman giving her direction, whereas a lot of people she's worked with may not have done. You know, I think Norman's giving his 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 cast much better direction than a lot of people at his level did. You know, and the, so she's good in in the first twenty minutes of the film, but that last hour where she's been sort of taken over by aliens. She's so good because she conveys both sides of the character. And as you say, she conveys all of the horror that's happening to her. Just just absolutely brilliant. I, I you know, award worthy in a film that was never, ever going to get a million miles within any award ceremony. No, no, no. Yeah, just, yeah, really stood out for me. Well, that's that's the, the, the sort of like the core of, of, of Norman's career. Uh, after 1987, there was no more feature films directed by Norman, but he kept trying to get stuff off the ground. Yeah, he was yeah. talking about sequels for a long time. You know, he'd, he'd got ideas to do a sequel to Terror. The, I think there was a script for uh, a sequel to Prey. I was lucky enough to see a treatment that he'd written called Stage Fright, which Norman passed on to me about 20 years ago and uh, was, again, a little bit old-fashioned and a bit out of date and uh, um, something that might have might have been good in, in the 60s or early 70s. But he, he pitched it to me and uh, Paul Cockgrove, who's the... Uh, the guy who runs the um, Horror on Sea Film Festival in Southend, which, again, we've mentioned in the past. And Paul was was looking at putting a few little horror movie productions together at the time. You know, he was trying to get into, uh, into filmmaking and feature filmmaking himself. So Norman had sent along this treatment as something for us to consider. Um, yeah, it, it just didn't fly, really. It just wasn't 21st century. But, uh, yeah, he was constantly trying to do uh, productions. In the meantime, I know he was working in um, behind the scenes in film companies, filming adverts and filming, like, industrial training films and stuff like that. So chances are that if you worked in an office, you might have seen something directed by Norman. You know, one of those things where you get called in by the manager oh we've got this 10 minute training film to show you you know about how how to fill in form xb 29 or something the horrors of not bending at the knees that kind of stuff (laughs) exactly yeah you know how to lift pallets safely Mm. without doing your back in yeah and and yeah so norman was was involved in things like that and commercials and so on so he was making a bit of money doing that you know but um, um you know norman sadly left us the 11th of march very, very sad to everyone who knew him and, and the community that knew him. The two things that we've taken away from this that have made us all feel a little more positive and a little better about it. A, Norman got his due before the end of his life. He got the big box set that came out from Indicator. He got the BFI involved. He got acceptance from the British film establishment before the end of his life. In the final four or five years of his life, He knew not only was he loved by the fans and not only did he love us back, but the critics and the people that had been against him and against his brand of cinema all of his life finally changed their minds and finally said, no, we like this type of art and you are an artist within that. The main thing, the thing that Norman would be most proud of, I think, though, is that he got another movie made. He was involved in this uh, Chinese-themed um, horror thriller called Susu, which he was going to direct, 
And for a few years, he was trying to get that off the ground and, and get that made. And eventually, whether this was through illness or, or whatever, I don't know, he, he sort of took a little bit of a backseat on the project. But he did end up being credited as a producer on it. And there was a Chinese director called Yi Si Sin, I think her name was, who, uh, who came in and filmed it. It's not been shown all that widely yet. I think it's had one festival screening uh, somewhere in Wales and um, it's not been released anywhere on disc or streaming or anything as far as I'm aware. So um, I'm hoping that now Norman's left us, it might be a film that one or two of the festivals start trying to seek out and playing, you know. Um, two two Chinese girls in a mansion in Scotland, I think, who were working as translators and get involved with some kind of uh, mysterious and supernatural goings on. So that's that's all I know about Susu, but hopefully we'll get to see it soon. And uh, But yeah, the, the very fact that A, Norman got this acceptance from the critical establishment, and B, that he made another film. I think if, if he had to leave us, you know, what a way to go. How, what a way yeah. to go out. Yeah, I mean, he's like he had twenty years of of making movies in the, in the British film industry, which is like twenty times more than most people yeah. get. So you know, yeah, that's twenty times more than me and you have had. So there you go. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sad he's gone, but there's a great body of work to explore uh, from Norman's life, uh, and most of it, I believe, is available out on Blu-ray or DVD now. I don't I think, think apart I think, from I think, the one we've just been talking about, Susu. I, yeah, yeah. I think pretty much everything apart from that. I think gunpowder gun is available only as part of some kind of odd triple bill on on um, on a screen-bound DVD. And uh, Loving Feeling is out there somewhere. It's uh, quite hard to get hold of, I think. But most of the rest are, are, are sort of easy. And, um, yeah, if, the, if you can track down a, a, a stray copy of this um, recently sold-out uh, indicator box set, which has got all of Norman's horror films in, that's the place to start. Yeah, so it's a cracking box set. Uh, highly recommended. Okay, uh, thank you very much, Daryl. Uh, thank Adam. you for everyone for joining us this week, uh, this this podcast. Um, we will be back again in a couple of weeks with another one. Thank you again to the BFI and Quad for supporting our podcasts, and we will see you soon. Take care.